Welcome to another Incrementals Podrick the Podcast episode, the podcast that brings you insightful conversation with thought leaders and experts from the marketing technology world. This episode is part of our Orchestrating Measurement series, an audio continuation of the white paper we've recently published. I'm Hadara Tellen, Director of Business Product Operations at Incremental. I'll be hosting this episode together with Maor Sadra, CEO and co-founder of Incremental. Our guest today is Dr. Julian Runge, faculty at Northeastern University and principal scientist at Games Data Pro. Julian is an expert in marketing data topics with both academic and practical experience. Check out several of his publications in the links down below. But before we dive into this exciting discussion, make sure you're subscribed to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We have a wealth of knowledge, insights and inspiration lined up for you. Without any further delay, sit back and enjoy the Measurement Orchestra interview with Julian. And we're going to start in a... Hello, Julian. Hello. Nice to be here. By the way, I know that I, I, might, I might have asked this already, but should I pronounce it Julian or Julian? Um, well, my friends call me either, to be honest. I think Julian <laughs> is probably more common because I'm like spending so much time um, in English-speaking environments. Um, but honestly, whatever you prefer. I like both. Cool. Uh, for the many listeners that we have, uh, would you mind introducing yourself? No, I'd be happy to. So I'm excited to be here. Um, I'm faculty at Northeastern University in Boston at the Maura McKim School of Business in the marketing department. Um, I do research and teaching on marketing data science. And I'm also a principal scientific advisor to Game Data Pros, um, which uh, is a company consisting of 40 world-class experts across gaming data problems, really. So infrastructure, engineering, analytics, data science, product, and measurement, and uh, we do both offer hands-on support with tooling, so building bespoke solutions, but also advisory and consulting. And um, yeah, that, that's me. I'm originally an economist by training, but spent a lot of time um, building a data science team in gaming at VUGA in Berlin, and then did a PhD in quantitative marketing. And yeah, happy to be here. Cool, and it's the, per- the, it's the second uh, podcast we're on together, okay? Yes, yeah, and uh, it's my third overall, so there's a pattern, like, I'll spend a lot of my post- podcasts with you. <laughs> nice, so you, you actually, you, all, you just recently also uh, published another podcast, you want to share about it, or I can also link about it uh, later. Yeah, great point. Um, so um, that is the Game Economics podcast uh, that is run by Philip Black, um, and uh, yeah, I went on there and we discussed algorithmic personalization. Uh, in games especially, but also uh, in the digital ecosystem more widely. Um, and the starting point for the conversation was actually an article I published on Mobile Dev Memo, um, a guest post um, on the engagement engineering fr- framework that I use to structure my thinking on how to use algorithms and science to personalize um, in-game and app experiences. So, you know, before we go to the questions we prepared, so... You know, we've spoken in the past already before our interview with uh, Eric, and uh, you actually like were advising one of the companies that we were onboarding, and you know you you kind of vetted us, and then later I discovered that your buddies with the uh, Eric that you actually stayed with him even for for some time, um, and I wanted to ask you like something uh, I don't know maybe you'll find it odd or not, but I always think that like the people who really get it, okay, they're they're pretty much the one percent, and right now the one percent is 
is indeed small, even though I think that a lot of people should understand some of the topics that we're going to be talking about. What's your thing? Like you meet a lot of companies as well. Like, do you see people who are already very much aware of the problems they have and the solutions they might need? Or it's like a tabula rasa? Um, well, that's a, that's a difficult one. I would say I actually see very varying degrees of experience and expertise with MMM specifically, so marketing mixed modeling, but also marketing analytics overall. Um, I, I find it hard to find a general pattern. I think there's a lot of scrambling happening, especially among digital first advertisers that kind of are spoiled because they, they were used to deterministic attribution and just using that for optimization of marketing spend. So I see a lot of people kind of scramble to get probabilistic measurement solutions in place or figure out if they need one and what's the spend level where MMM even makes sense. So, so that I see, but I also see some people who already do some pretty good stuff. Um, so yeah, I think I, I see a lot of interesting things happening in the marketplace. Very cool. I think that um, MMM solutions are here for like ages ago. I think it was invented around the 1960s and it, it has now come back. Um, so why is it making a comeback? And like, is it the same MMM? What has changed between the 1960s and today? Yeah, that's a good question. So I actually just looked into that um, last week. Uh, I think the the original paper introducing the marketing mix, the concept of the marketing mix is by Neil Borden. He wrote that in 1964. And he says that he kind of started the concept 15 years ago. So yeah, since the 50s, we have the concept. Marketing mix modeling is almost as old, probably a few years younger. Um, and I mean, I think the key reason it's making comeback is just uh, because probabilistic measurement solutions overall are really what people need again because deterministic attribution is going away. I think a, a key starting point for that or accelerating event um, was when Apple introduced iOS 14.5 and deprecated the idea of A or moved it from opt out to opt in. Um, I actually wrote an article about that with Eric Sufert, uh, published in Harvard Business Review, and we timed it to be published exactly on the date when when um, iOS 15.4, sorry, 14.5 started rolling out, I believe it was April uh, 26, 2021. Um, don't hold me to that, but sometime around then. Um, <clears throat> and ever since then, yeah, this is coming into fashion again quite a bit. Um, it's even, you know, coming so much into fashion that the Marketing Science Institute recently published a Blue Ribbon report compiled by some of the superstar academics on marketing measurement and they, they're kind of laying out how companies can chart um, marketing mixed modeling in the future. So yes, it's getting a lot of attention and traction. And in my opinion, it, it, I mean, of course, it's still the same basic methods and you can even still use some of the old school methods, but there's also a lot of new stuff happening that's partially pretty exciting. So what's definitely different nowadays is a data landscape, right? Like while deterministic attribution may be going away, we still have much more detailed and richer data sets available to support measurement. Plus also methods have evolved a lot, especially in terms of machine learning and data-driven approaches. So I think often parametric models, even simple linear parametric models may still be useful to start um, doing marketing mixed modeling, but then things get um, more, get fancier from there. Um, 
to mention that even I, I have a project with researchers at Duke University and um, UNC Chapel Hill, where, where we're looking, for example, into how we can integrate natural language processing and the breakthrough things that are happening there with marketing mix modeling. Um, I think other things that are pretty exciting are, you know, some of the open source packages that funnily enough are started by some of the large tech companies, but I do think they have some interesting computational elements. So Robin, which is the package provided or started by, by Meta, um, has rich regression, for example, to deal with multicollinearity, um, and, but also Lightweight, which is Google's um, MMM package, has some interesting things. Um, and I think this open source dynamic is something that's kind of new. Um, not that I know this perfectly, but I think often in the past, MMM happened in an agency model right, kind of behind closed doors with arcane methodologies that weren't super transparent. And um, I think that is changing quite a bit with these open source solutions and everybody kind of trying to figure out how to build their own models using very transparent um, solutions that are available in the marketplace. Yeah, I think that you're mentioning, sorry, you're, you're mentioning a lot of uh, basic items and kind of things that you've gone through during research. I think that uh, you're a very interesting kind of guest because you're also from an academic background and you're kind of actively working in the university today. Um, this is my personal interest. Do you think that kind of we as industry of marketing and kind of mobile, should we take more um, insights and information from researchers that are being done today? about MMM, about all the recent changes that we're making instead of kind of not just relying on stuff that started in the 1960s, but also um, work with recent researches that are being made? That's a, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, um, yes, always. Like, I mean, this is almost my key passion in life, right? Bringing the best from science to real world to have impact in, in a positive way. And I will say, though, that um, both industry and academia are their own systems, right, with their own self-referential mechanisms, incentive systems, and so on. So I see it go both ways. I think academia actually is kind of lagging a little bit maybe behind where it could be when it comes to catching up with what's happening with the data infrastructure of digital advertising, for example, or also when it comes to what's happening in machine learning, right? Because a lot of that stuff, the, the great stuff is actually being developed at companies, not, not um, at universities. So overall, I just wish there was a more regular exchange and a more constructive exchange between practitioners and, and, and academics and well, I don't know, maybe we can even do something together. I'd, I'd love to to explore this, yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I can say that I uh, have done like a thesis MBA, nothing too uh, fancy, but I did it about consumer behavior. And I really was looking for companies that would allow me to make my research about real data of like actual companies such as gaming companies. And it was really hard to get to the approval to do it at the time because companies kind of uh, usually prefer to keep their data close to them, even though, um, it is can be published anonymously and all of that. But uh, it's just kind of my personal interest because I think those two uh, basic domains can really work well with each other and learn from each other. Um, gaming companies are very progressive, but research has also done a lot of progress progression along the years and it's now kind of much better. And I think those two should be better kind of working together. I want to jump to another question and then um, actually 
need to uh, need to thank you, Julian, for for clarifying this topic. So a lot of people just use the term MMM. Okay, now MMM may stand for media mix modeling, may also stand for marketing mix uh, modeling, and a lot of people confuse the two, and they are not just synonymous. And you recently actually published an article. I could tell you that I like shared it with everybody I know. Uh, read this. This is like a pretty important distinction. Can you explain the distinction? Well, uh, thank you for sharing that article. Um, but I'm happy to hear that. Um, maybe also just to mention it for people who are interested, it, it's called Dear Digital First Advertisers, Are You Media or Marketing Mixed Modeling? Um, it's actually on, on the Game Data Pros blog. So gamedatapros.com slash blog, if, if you want to take a look. Um, and yeah, so I, I mean, the reason I, I decided to, to write this was just because I noticed many people, right, as you say, more, um, were using marketing and media mix modeling kind of interchangeably. And, you know, to some extent in, in digital first business, that's okay. It kind of makes sense because um, everybody is mostly busy with deciding how they allocate investment across different media, mostly digital media. But um, the two are actually not the same, right? Um Marketing mix modeling, if you so will, is the much wider technique that really tries to optimize across the marketing mix. And that involves at least the 4P in the traditional framing. So product, place, price, and promotion, where media mix modeling is really mostly occupies itself with like deciding how you optimize the budget allocation across media, um, advertising media mostly. So this would fall within the promotion category of marketing mix modeling. And um I think I mentioned earlier this report published by the Marketing Science Institute um, called Charting the Future of Marketing Mixed Modeling Best Practices. And once again, the authors are some of the best academics um, in the field. And in there, they make a nice distinction. They call marketing mixed modeling MMM with capital M, and they call media mixed modeling um, MMM with uh, non-capital M in the beginning. And I think that kind of ca nicely captures this nuance that's often overlooked, especially among digital first advertisers, that media mix modeling is actually a sub area of marketing mix modeling. Wouldn't it actually just make more sense to call it advertising mix modeling rather than because it's it's I can tell you again, the amount of people who are confused um, or at least believe that they have a marketing while they actually use media is quite enormous. And, you know, these almost it's not semantics it's a terminology matters a lot yeah and it's already too much like there are too many terms already like now you have these have can you have probabilistic you have different types of probabilistic you have deterministic you have your regular mmp data now you have mmm but you have mmm with a small m and mmm with a large m and then you can i get confused you have an in, you have an install tracked by an attribution company, and you have the install tracked by Apple search ads. Those are not the same install. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I, I get your point very much. Um, I think so. You would propose to call it MMM and AMM. Um, by basically. the way, there is a there is a company who has an MMM product, and they actually call it AMM. AMM oh. is also the advanced mobile measurement for Meta <laughs> that they revoked two years ago. So I don't think it's a good, it's already taken. There are too many. <laughs> well, maybe we should just use less abbreviations. <laughs> yeah. 
good, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so do you believe there is a need also for kind of orchestration and integration of different measurement methodologies, such as attribution, MMM, and incrementality? We mentioned all of this, but do you think that we could orchestrate these to work together in order to kind of gain comprehensive understanding of the marketing total effectiveness? And if so, um, how do you approach this integration? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I think there absolutely is a need to do that kind of integration and orchestration. And I think we just nicely touched on what's all available there in terms of uh, abbreviated methods. <laughs> um, and the thing is, though, at least for what I see, like the, the more different decision and action layers kind of, right, uh, or hierarchies, levels you want to inform and coordinate, the more stakeholders you have, and it can get pretty complex pretty quickly. So I think this is an area like, and at least in my mind, that's also an area where incremental, like, you know, the company, you can, I think, contribute a lot uh, to the market, because I'm not sure that there's, first of all, I'm not sure there's a one size fits all solution. Um, but many people are kind of, I see struggle with this a little bit. And one thing uh, that is also a tough modeling problem, but is, for example, to try to integrate uncertainty estimates across different levels and hierarchies of actioning and decisioning. That, that's just not easy to do and very often done. Either you just don't show uncertainty estimates or you address this heuristically by doing some kind of hack. Um, it's also not like I would have the perfect solution for that, but th that's, for example, one area where I think um, the market needs help and support. Uh, what I'd also like to mention in this regard is actually another blog post that I wrote um, a few weeks ago or months um, on incrementality in, in game analytics, um, because I think game analytics specifically has actually not thought about the incrementality concept all that much. And while, while they use or game analysts use methods to define incremental impact a lot, it's never called that way. But what I wanted to say is like in that in that blog post, I show kind of a matrix of different methods available to to do incrementality me uh, measurement. Right. And, and for such a matrix, you could put a lot of different dimensions on 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 the matrix. And what I chose to do there is on the hor horizontal dimension. I have the level of control or intervention that is possible. Right. Like how well can you actually control the user experience at the user level? And on the vertical dimension, I have the proximity of the method to the user versus the market. And um, I'd be excited if, if people take a look and let me know what they think, but that matrix includes both marketing mix modeling then media mix modeling on the, on the one side, so closer to the market. And when we don't have the ability to introduce variation at the user level and randomize at the user level, and then on the very right-hand side where we can control at the user level and intervene, there's experimentation and there's randomized control trials where we really decide on a per user level, what treatment do they get and then use that to measure our effects of interest. All this is to say, I think this is an area where the, there's a lot of work to be done. And um, yeah, uh, I wouldn't say that I would you know, have a perfect answer. And I think very often it also really needs to build on the specific needs and institutional setting of, of a specific company. Although I love the, the fact that you mentioned, mentioned the uncertainty bit. So yeah, like in our platform, um, obviously there's often outliers beyond the prediction that we can't like we can't attribute. And rather than filling the gaps, um, our platform literally calls it an unknown. Okay. Now we had some discussion sessions, like how do we call unknown? Do we call it seasonality? Because it's not necessarily just seasonality. 
Um, it can be literally an unknown. We had a lot of discussions to think, again, from a semantic standpoint, if unknown is the right term. So far, by the way, we couldn't come up with another name. So it's still called unknown. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, by the way, it's sometimes tough for companies to accept that. Like from our side, we are actually very proud of revealing that, hey, there is an unknown. We don't know. Okay. We don't want to play. I agree. I think it's the rigorous thing to do, right? Um, and very transparent. So I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, it's like kind of, you know, accepting the unknown or uncertainty is the antithesis of what managers try to do. Managers are there to exert control over the environment and make decisions. So yeah, it's always interesting to see how how different managers deal with uncertainty. I want to jump into another question. So like recently, and you kind of also addressed it in the past. In the past, like MMM was built usually by agents, okay? It was... Um, like the person who's actually responsible of also um, challenging things like priors. What, what's the prior? What should we like integrate? What should we include? What we should not include? Okay, should I include inflation? Should I not include inflation? Now, today, there's a lot of companies offering products um, that do MMM. Some of these offer it as a service, like we're going to help you build one. Some of this just offer it as peer software. Um, now, the question here is not about the, the companies or the products or the frameworks is like, is there still a place for human expertise in the world of measurement, especially when we're talking about modeling? Wow. Um, <clears throat> that, sorry, that is, a, that is a good question. Give me a second to think about that, actually. Um, I think there is. And I'm actually going to mention another academic paper, um, which is Blackburg and Hoke. In 1990, they wrote this paper in Management Science, which is one of the top journals in business research, um, which is called something like 50% manager, 50% model. And they kind of show that if you integrate the expertise and intuitions available in the organization with quantitative modeling, you can do better than with each individual input. Right. And I think this idea in a way goes back to ensemble methods overall, which are quite common in, in machine learning, for example, where you have different algorithms or um, intelligences decide or make a prediction, and then you have them vote. And whatever the majority vote is, for example, could be what you go with them. Um, and I think that it's not easy to do, right? Because uh, I think one of the challenges is first, like how do you actually formalize all the knowledge and intuition and expert um, wisdom available in the organization? Like how do you formalize that and then quantify it such that, or at least make it tractable in a way that it can be integrated with um, data-driven methods and quantitative modeling. But I think there is huge opportunities um, and actually maybe what I should, like it's actually something I've also been discussing with some um, some of the marketing scientists at at Meta. Um, like how how can you build an MMM solution that kind of opens up opportunities to integrate such managerial best practices or ideally even managerial knowledge? And it's hard, so I don't think I have an answer yet. But stay tuned. I'm thinking about it, and maybe I'll I'll write something about it in the near future. I'll, I'll make sure to let you know. I can tell you that like initially when when me and Moti uh, or when Moti and I decided to start the incremental, our plan was we're going to build marketing automation. Some of our advisors said that's what you should do. The 
the platform should stop campaigns, scale campaigns, and so on. Very quickly, we <laughs> took this off the table, and it's things like brand keywords, like brand keyword campaigns of Google. Okay, if you're if you are a pretty well known brand and you're bidding on your brand keywords, I can almost guarantee that the incrementality level is going to be pretty low. I don't want our platform shutting those campaigns down because, like brand keyword bidding, for example. It's more of a marketing strategy. It's a defensive strategy. And who knows, maybe stopping those could be decremental. Okay, You could, in theory. And it's one of the reasons why, for example, like the model doesn't care. Okay, The model will literally show you if you're measuring a brand keyword campaign and it's not incremental, the model will show you it's not incremental. But I, I still think that there is, a, there is an expertise and domain knowledge and strategy layer there that someone needs to basically dictate. You know what? Even though it's not incremental, we're keeping it. Because the good news is that most of the time, brand keyword bid is limited because it's it, there is an actual limitation on supply and demand. Uh, but there's a lot of other things. Uh, again, when you when you run a big brand campaign, and um, you can't really expect like uh, pure performance to come instantaneously after. While if you're running a lower funnel campaign on Meta or display or programmatic and so on, you you should. <laughs> you should expect uh, performance to come. Um, it's a difficult question that, at least for now, for us, we said, you know what, we weigh everything the same, but we don't take part in the decision. We only show you the results as are based on the modeling. I agree with that approach. Uh, I think that also kind of with discussing with our uh, clients and from the information and the knowledge I have, people want to know what to do, but do it themselves. Um, make the added value that they know they have a bigger or larger context. They have their own expertise. Uh, even in budget, budget allocation, even if you give to a customer exactly where to increase your budget, I think they need to have the place to say, okay, uh, I trust that recommendation. I do not. I have additional knowledge that I know about our bigger plans, um, about the performance that we know for long term, about kind of a marginal effect that it gives, even if it's not incremental, um, incrementally viewed, such as kind of, I don't know, pre-install that doesn't look good in performance uh, early metrics, but does may have this recovery in long-term metrics. So I think people and customers, they want to basically know what we recommend, but make the decisions themselves and not have us do everything for them. Yeah, and I think this goes back to um, the managerial control, right? That's the, that's the essence of why, why people are there. And even just not only for that, but to satisfy their needs or preference, but also just because there is often elements that human experts know about an institutional setting, about how operations work in a specific market that that aren't necessarily available to, to the automated solution from the get-go. Um, so I think, yeah, integrating this is is like a key area where, where people can, or where, where companies can contribute a lot um, to help the market do better. Um, I'd also say you even see it like in, in this, like I think recently on Mobile Dev Memo and there were a little bit of these conversations around how can the CMO and the CFO actually communicate effectively with, with each other. So even within different, within the same organization, within different departments, people have different mindsets of how they think about the, the market, what data they use, how they think about uncertainties. 
And that's another area where I feel um, the market could use some help. How do you actually facilitate also these internal conversations with, with the right data? And then how do you find the right level of automation you want to provide? And I think if you crack that, that's a, that's, that's an amazing solution. There, I'm going to I'm gonna squeeze in an article I wrote <laughs> that published like <laughs> two weeks ago. And it's funny because Eric posted uh, his CFO article maybe four days after mine. And I asked him, like, okay, related. But I think, again, uh, like anyone who understands or reads this market kind of sees the same challenges. And like I wrote the CFO CMO conundrum, how can marketers prove the value of ad spend to finance teams, especially in a privacy-centric world where you can't just so show Hey, that's what my reporting told. Maybe models should be able to help C-levels work well together. Anyway, based on your experience, uh, what advice would you give to other marketers who are now striving to integrate and make attribution, MMM, incrementality, and other tools uh, work together effectively? Yeah. Hmm. Give me a moment to think on that one. Um... You have good questions. Um, well, I think uh, one, one element that I at least hold close to my heart um, is experimentation overall. And maybe if we if we um, frame this more broadly, ground truth calibration. So for example, taking a lift test result or right, the result of an ad experiment um, or maybe some lower level attribution results where you have a reasonable assumption that they will give you a causal effect estimate because the baseline effects are zero in that specific market. And then you take these estimates and you calibrate your observational model. So by observational model, I mean they're like, you know, a marketing mix or time series um, kind of model. And you calibrate that against um, those results. And I think that's a key area where there's also some need to, to understand that better and how companies can really succeed with that. Some companies will have an always on um, solution, right? Where there's always some holdout group that they have across markets. That, however, is something that only very large companies can afford to do, right? If you're not a super large company, you're probably not gonna be willing to hold out a constant share of the market from your advertising because you just wanna generate business. Um, this is actually another area that I wrote an article about um, for Harvard Business Review in, I believe, March of this year. Um, so we titled that a new gold standard for digital ad me measurement, question mark. And that title was intended to be kind of joking and provocative. It did achieve that because some people took it for literally like we're suggesting this is new, the new gold standard, which it's not. But like the, the basis for that article was actually 18 case studies we conducted with advertisers that that like, you know, studying like basically how does the MMM do and how what's the result of an ad experiment. And um, we found on average that the MMM is, can, is off by 15% or rather the, the experiment will calibrate by 15% the ROAS, the return on ad spend estimates of the MMM. But we also saw there was one study where the adjustment was actually 55%. And that's quite meaningful. So I'd say like 15% adjustment is pretty good. So the MMMs were doing pretty well overall. But if you have a 55% difference in the estimate for ROAS, that's a bit of a problem. And this happened for audience targeted ads. So I think that's, that's a general thing that I would recommend um, to the market per your question. Um, if you have highly targeted advertising, the more you want to make sure to complement your observational measurement approaches, your probabilistic measurement approaches like MMM, 
with experiment-based or other credible lower-level effectiveness estimates. And um, there's another topic here, which is geo-experiments um, that we maybe could talk about, but don't have to. In our studies, we actually did use geo-experiments to, to do the calibration exercise. So our experiments were all geo-experiments, um, but I know not everybody's a fan of them. So yeah, but this is one key recommendation I would have to mark for the market. If you target strongly, make sure you calibrate your probabilistic measurement solutions. By the way, you, you literally just inspired me. I'm going to write an article specifically about the topic of calibration. Like for us, it's incremental. It's not really a point, but I think that people uh, don't necessarily understand what, what is calibration because when when you're used to 20 years of last, last click attribution, there's no calibration. Your, your calibration is window of attribution, okay? Seven days for click, one day for view, 28 days for click, seven days for view. That's your calibration. And a lot of people, even that, by the way, do not understand and never, ever, ever change the defaults. But like um, in MMM, I think we both understand that without calibration, you just have a completely distorted, skewed view of the world that makes absolutely no sense. And by the way, this is what I think deterred a lot of companies away from MMM tools because they went ahead and signed up with an MMM tool, ran it, and the data made no sense, and they didn't understand that MMM requires patience. Requires a lot more. Yeah. Patience yeah. is one of them. Yeah, well, it, <laughs> I agree, but no, it's a good point because that's often overlooked. Um, it's true. You need patience with MMM because in the end, you you leverage variation over time, right? And if you don't give it that time, you might um, work based off of, of a pretty bad model. One thing I would love to mention at this point is, though, also for the case of experimental calibration, garbage in, garbage out applies. Meaning if, if you don't have an MMM that you feel good about, that you like, you know, or probabilistic measurement solution more generally that you think is producing somewhat credible estimates for you and you, you feel good about having thought through it, having built into it the institutional expertise you have, then experiment calibration will not necessarily help. I mean, of course it will if you have experiments for all media channels and so on, but usually that won't be the case, right? You'll have one or two experiments that you calibrate against and only really do that if you have a good feeling about your overall model. That's one one note of caution I would mention here. Yeah, and I think this is kind of the, the hard part to get to because if you get to this part, you have most of the work done. And I think that a lot of companies try to kind of skip that part and get directly to results. And I think that this is kind of one of the downsides of or kind of the risks of uh, using MMM and kind of not putting um, enough on your internal analytical kind of team, um, your internal business knowledge um, in your domain, and try to kind of get it from sometimes tools that do not understand your data and your own kind of structure is sometimes a problem. Um, okay, I think we kind of reached to the end and now we have only the fun question. So we are talking about marketing orchestration um, and we want to know uh, if you were in a kind of orchestra, which instrument would you be playing? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, in an orchestra, which I mean, I actually would love to play the trumpet. I, I used to love the trumpets as a kid, but I think nowadays I may, maybe the drum right? Like for the occasional input that makes everybody listen up and be like, oh, what was that? <laughs> Maybe that's what I'd like to be. <laughs> With drum in an orchestra, which drum? Timpani. 
Yeah, okay. I mean, I don't yeah. actually, big, maybe I don't know tim- enough about this. Or isn't the there something? Timpani. Yeah, but yeah, also sometimes the Tiffany drums. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes they have this big drum that like boom. Gong. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, it's funny that you mentioned trumpet because uh, Eric said that he also uh, used to play trumpet, but his choice was a bassoon. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, didn't know that. Glad to hear it. <laughs> yeah, we have a we have an interview for the series with Alex Bauer. He's a VP product at Branch. He also contributed to the white paper. He's a classic pianist. So I'm pretty sure that the instrument is going to choose. But let's see. Maybe maybe he surprises us. Yeah, so I didn't know piano is a thing. Um, I used to play the piano myself, actually. Um, yeah, for, for many years. Um, but I don't anymore, so... <laughs> But now I'm going to listen to all the podcasts to know what everybody wants to be in an orchestra. Yeah, that's why we asked this question. <laughs> well done. <laughs> cool, thank you so much. Well, thank you. Super excited to be here, and I hope we can also continue the conversation in the future. Thank you so much. <laughs>